0: When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: Hello, you're listening to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I am Hugh Wizencroft. And today we'll analyse the curious case of Mesut Ozil, the World Cup winner now left out of Arsenal's Premier League squad. Was his activism at the heart of the issue? Uh, We'll discuss when it's right for a player to speak up. Also, what a result for Manchester United in the Champions League this week. We will see if they can carry that momentum into their game against Chelsea at the weekend. And as Jorginho... Becomes a bit of a school teacher, uh, teaching Thiago Silva English. We'll ask what football phrases do players in England need to know. That all coming up over the next hour or so. To help me through it all, Jonathan Northcroft, Tom Clark and Gregor Robertson. Hello, guys. Hello, Hugh. How are you? Hi, Hugh. Yeah, I'm feeling a little bit melancholy about Meza Ozil. That's a player that I've loved in the Premier League over the last few years. And not to have the opportunity to see him even in the, the, you know, Arsenal's... I guess, least important Premier League games is is very sad. And look, people have contrasting opinions about it. Some saying there are 350,000 reasons every single week why Mesut Ozil shouldn't care. But I still think from a sporting perspective, to see a player like him who's been great, let's be honest, I was thinking this morning, you know, if you were to name Arsenal's team of the last decade, I think he'd be in it. And now he's left out of the cold He's not in the Europa League squad. He's not in the Premier League squad. And he had a statement yesterday. He said, Upon signing my new contract in 2018, I pledge my loyalty and allegiance to the club that I love, Arsenal. And it saddens me that this has not been been reciprocated. Uh, Henry Winter has been writing about it in the Times as well. He says, this is the long goodbye and Ozil is leaving Arsenal with a whimper. It is sad. Such talent, the ability to glide away from markers with the ball, the threaded passes, the vision, the little bump shot to deceive goalkeepers the control I mean he sums up a player who has been I I think at least fantastic for most of his time in England and at other clubs across Europe as well Gregor before we get to the the reasons why do you agree that this is a sad state of affairs are you on the other side of the fence
2: I think it's always sad when a player uh, is so far out in the cold that they've got no chance of a of a return Uh, and particularly when it's a player of Ozil's talent um (laughs) In this particular instance, I would say myself that um, he has to go. I think I said this last end of last season. There was a list of players that Arsenal have to get out, and and Ozil and Gwendozi were top of that list. Personally, I thought um, Ozil, in terms of just because of the the noise that that has been surrounding him for the for the past year or eighteen months or something. Um, I, you know, there's still. I think there's a lot of things we, we'll come on to discuss about the the his activism and and whether that's had any any bearing on this. But I think also there's just a a feeling that Ozil is not the system is the star for Arteta now, and Ozil is a star player. that doesn't fit into that system, and I think that is really I, I believe Arteta when he says that this was my decision and. It's a footballing decision and you know we all know that that Ozil is is a phenomenal player and has been a, a a phenomenal player for Arsenal as well but their kind of direction of travel has changed and Ozil doesn't fit into that so personally I think it's a this is a footballing decision really.
1: Uh, Mikel Arteta, uh, uh, yeah he does say that he spoke to the media yesterday he spoke about it being a football decision in in no uncertain terms, but he also said he'd failed. He said it was his job to get the best out of the German, but the explanation, the clarification was something that was needed. And it was a strong explanation of the situation, Johnny. That is what we got. Are are you happy that at least um, Mikel Arteta was open about the topic?
3: Yeah, I think he did a lot to um, deflate the the, the kind of um, mania that was that was around yesterday when the announcement came out that Oswald wasn't in the squad um, and I think how he dealt with it is also symptomatic of of why we are where we are because Arteta very quickly in a short period of time has become such a central figure at that football club he has sort of replaced Arsene Wenger and more as the kind of the dominant personality, and this was at a club that was trying to move away from having the one dominant figure. But I think Arteta has been so convincing to support us and also convincing to his employers that they've given him the, the keys, they've given him the power. So the fact that he is willing to, he wants to make a big decision like leaving Ozil out, which for economic reasons might not make sense for Arsenal, they've backed him in that because they trust him so much. And one of the reasons they trust him so much is why the FA trusts Gareth Southgate so much. There's nothing like having a guy front of house who can communicate your company's um, decisions as articulately and as well as Arteta does. And I felt that he, he did a, a, a fun, you know a, a magnificent job from a PR point of view of shifting the debate as much as he could um, onto football issues, taking responsibility, um, and I actually got—I did get the sense that he shares a bit of our sadness. That you know, th- there was a genuineness when he said he'd failed, um, but um, you know, also um, maybe a message as well to to about Ozil that um, you know, if he is this superstar, um, untouchable player, that maybe some people who who, who love him. A lot think he is then does he need to be helped does he need to have a um a manager um make a, a a success of him if you know what i mean um it's not the you wouldn't say a manager would never say oh i failed with leonor messi i failed with cristiano ronaldo so i felt within that there was a little bit of a a message that arteta's a kind of player that needs a manager to um you configure things around him with we'll show him enough love, and I've failed to be able to
1: do that. He writes just tweeted fifteen minutes or so ago. He says you can have empathy for Mesut as a footballer and be supportive of how Mikkel has addressed the issue with total responsibility and accountability. It reminds me of the way George Graham would have dealt with it. Think that's right, Johnny? <laughs> <laughs> Not sure about that. Um, I mean, the the more, look, the modern
3: equivalent is is. Um, he, he, Arteta's got that streak in him that Graham had, that Fergie had, that Wenger had, where you make yourself a Klopp's got that you make himself, you make himself the man, and you, 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 you take everything on your shoulders. That's his way of management. So, I guess there's a, a, a sort of, um, parallel there. Um, I don't know, maybe George wouldn't have quite put it the way Arteta put
4: it. I agree with the idea that what Arteta said is brave in some kind of way or and shows leadership, but I, I don't really believe a word he says, to be honest, <laughs> because this is a footballing decision only in the sense that Mesut Ozil was never going to play football for Mikel Arteta's Arsenal. But this actually, Mesut Ozil and Arsenal is an example of the way a modern day footballer can be destroyed by narrative, destroyed by outside discussion. And it's a story that goes back way before Mikel Arteta, which is why it's good that he has fronted up and taken the responsibility and said I've failed, but that's not true. He he hasn't failed. He never really tried. You know, I I don't think any of us ever thought when Mikel Arteta took over, or oh, Meza Özil will be part of his plans. Um, so I'm not I'm not I'm not slagging him off for not trying. I can understand it, um, but I think if you if you look back to the story of Meza Özil in Arsenal. There's all that discussion around Sanchez and the contracts at that time with giving him the massive contract that he's got. There was such a clamour to lock down someone. Please let's not leave. let them all leave. Please sign someone. He's a great player, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then they sign him, and the narrative becomes we've offered him this massive contract, and it was about a power play, and we've locked down one of the greatest players. But then the inverse happens of where he starts to have a few bad games and all of a sudden he's a 350 or 300 grand a week failure flop. And he then starts to become the embodiment of everything that's bad with Arsenal, the poor planning, the poor business um, side of the game, the failure to produce on the pitch, the system that doesn't quite work, isn't quite fully effective. And that is, what is, that is the saddest part. And that's nothing to do with Mikel Arteta so it's it's great that he's taking responsibility for it but this is this was this this downfall started far before mikel arteta and is about far more than football um and we, even before you get to activism is activism it's about things that happened off the pitch in my opinion
3: tom i don't i don't i don't know how you can say it's not about football um i mean this guy's got four assists in 42 games over two seasons that's not Brilliant, is it, for a, a creative footballer? Michael Arteta played him for 10 games in a row before lockdown. He did try with them. Unai Emery didn't, didn't think much of him either. So there does seem to be big football reasons why he's not in the team.
4: It's definitely Football is definitely a part of it. I'm just saying that there are outside influences that, are, that have overtaken the football side of things. Meza Ozil is a great footballer. He has bad games. He has good games. There's definitely a way of him working in a top six Premier League side. But this is about far more than just football, I guess. I'd agree there's definitely a part of it. And I'm, 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 I'm by saying that, I don't think he was ever going to play for Mikel Arteta's Arsenal side. I'm agreeing that it is about football in that sense. But it's not... Th- this, this dismissal of him now as any part of Arsenal and not being in the squad is not just because, oh, I've failed him, he's not good enough. Oh, poor old Meza. It's way more than that. You know that it's like, you know, it's similar to what modern-day managers have to do at big clubs. They have to get rid now of players who the narrative is so strong around them that it's almost poisonous to his to the manager's reputation now. Um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer had it with Alexis Sanchez. There was, there was no win really there, unless he'd suddenly started playing him and Ozil had got two assists a game and looked amazing, unless Sanchez had started playing for Solskjaer and suddenly started scoring. There's no win you have to just get rid. And so that's, I'm saying that, yes, he can play him for 10 games, but underneath that, I'm pretty sure he would have always have known this guy's not with me for my journey that he's on as Arsenal coach.
1: Gregor, why not terminate his deal? I just don't get why Arsenal didn't pay him off and see him out the door.
2: I think they've, you know, reportedly there was discussions on that. Um, and I think he wanted all of his money. The thing is, it, why not? Well, why not give him all his money? Yeah, well, I, I agree because actually that saves still the club saves a lot of money. I have some experience in this, believe it or not. <laughs> the, club, the club still saves a lot of money. Another you earn know, three hundred
4: and fifty grand a week.
2: No, no, like three hundred fifty a week. No, honestly, I mean I've been. I, I two things. One is that this is a business decision in that you could the club does save money even if they pay him up it's just you know there's a there's a there's a bargaining aspect to this and the other is the kind of although we we're, we're saying yeah Ozil had had opportunity i think he was had opportunity was given opportunity by arteta and and as johnny says emery gave him gave him ample opportunity as well and there's so there is a part of it is a the direction of travel in modern football and him finding it harder to find a, a role in in the kind of the way that most most top teams play these days and part of it is a feeling that he seems to have, well his form's form's fallen off the edge of a cliff as well really, his output even when he has played. But I still feel, I still have some sympathy for him because I know what it's like to be so far out in the cold and you know you're training every day and you've not even got a chance of of making the matchday squad. It is, you know, I used to always say when you play football. Someone say, "What's it like to play football for a living?" I always said, "When you when you're winning, life is good. And when you're losing, life is bad. And if you're not even playing, life is unbearable. It's like it's that simple. It's that straightforward." So. Despite all the issues around Ozil and you know there's nuance to this I think part of it is a bit of a power play from Arteta and that's why I added Gunduzi in there that was discipline it was saying we need him out the door because he's indisciplined and Ozil was the guy who there's been too much noise around and the and the fact that he's not really stepped up in the way that say Aubameyang has in terms of pressing and and being part of his system and showing the kind of willingness to be part of the modern Arteta team um but at the same time, there is still a human who is, no matter how much money he's earning, whose career is is absolutely nosedived, and he's under the spotlight now. And you know, I, I wouldn't want to be in his shoes actually.
4: I guess that's what part of what I'm trying to get at is that I think that the the 300 grand a week waste of money, disgrace, blah blah blah. That to me came before the bad performances, and so it's interesting to hear Gregor say that that definitely affects you because if you've got that. Weighing down on your shoulders, you're the bad guy around the club. And then the new manager goes, Oh, go on, give us, you know, I'll start you maybe not quite in your right position with the B team, essentially, in the, you know, whatever cup competition. And then you've got to show your worth in the place in the team. That's doubly hard. It's great from the manager because you can go, Oh, yeah, great. I've given him a chance and see, not up to it. But it's not, surely, Gregor, it's that, that, that's, I guess that's one of the hardest things in
2: football. Like uh, the, the, the 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 most unprofessional thing I ever did in football was was in a, a moment like this, and it, like I have to caveat that this is not playing for Arsenal and it's not played out <laughs> under the kind of national uh, gaze. It was playing for Crew Alexandra in League One, but I was out in the cold, so far out in the cold, and I I remember once. There was a, a reserve game coming up and I'd, I could see that I was going to be on the bench for the reserves. That's how far down I would fallen. I'd had a first year where I'd played like 40 games. It was fine. Second year, I was out in the cold. And so I went to the manager and said, I'm not, I'm not playing. And you know, you can't really do that. I said, but I was just, you know, it's so, it's so demoralizing. Your whole identity is tied up with, with what you are, which is <laughs> a footballer and going and, as an experienced player and I, And a young team to sit on the bench i said i'm not playing so they made me train on my own for a week and you know ozil is this this is hard this is really hard so when arteta says i've given an opportunity he's given him an opportunity to to try and fight through all this kind of you know uh, being the guy who's the outsider so you've got to be you know on the other team in training, and still try and and kind of show that you're you deserve to be in the team, and you know work hard every single day, every moment, of every single day, and not get anywhere, but continue doing it. It's hard. So Arteta probably did give him a chance, and maybe Özil didn't, hasn't stepped up. But I don't really, you know, it's not easy. It's not easy.
1: Meza Özil gave a slight indication, maybe an implication. Then it might not have been football reasons, he said in his statement at a point he was no longer allowed to play football for Arsenal. He then went on to say at the end of his statement that he would continue to use his voice against inhumanity and for justice. And we know in the past Ozil's spoken out against the uh, treatment of Uyghur Muslims in China, there is allegations there of a genocide. Does his activism, do, the, do those statements, the pictures with the president of Turkey in the past, maybe those things could have affected his relationship with the club at, at, and maybe cost him his career at Arsenal, Johnny? What do you think?
3: Well, look, I do think there is a nuance here, and I think that's what we're probably trying to drill into and I, and I I want to separate that the, the, that the football from that so I, I would I would say that Arteta's not swept up on that I don't think that's why he's made the decision but I do think and this is where I'd I'd agree with Tom what you said about the narrative that there also has been a victim of um a changed relationship with his football club for a lot of reasons not I mean ones that actually predate the activism I suppose and even the meeting with with erdogan but there was a shift and and what where I'm sad for him is this shift came after the club, um, you know, when they lost Alexis Sanchez, the club then thrust him forward as the face of Arsenal. This is our, this is our guy. You know, they hyped him up, they built him up, in the same way that, same way that, let's say, United built up Pogba, and then maybe have struggled to deal with the consequences. So, having put him on that pedestal, he then doesn't act in in what they might see as a very corporate way. Now, I have huge sympathy for him. Um, with his um, uh, backing of, of the Uyghur Muslims and, and with the, the charitable works that he's done um, everything you hear about him it seems like he's, he's a very passionate and genuine individual about the causes that are important to him and I don't think Arsenal's reaction uh, or, or the way they handled the um, issue with China and, and um, the fallout was at all impressive from a human point of view And that must have soured his relationship with the club in his mind uh, as much as anything else. Um, Erdogan's a more difficult situation, but again, it's a situation where um, I I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that clubs thrust these footballers out there as personalities, but then get a bit upset when they stop just being footballers and they actually take the mantle that they've been given and, and try and use it for things they believe in and then clubs get all corporate and go oh, no no we didn't we didn't mean you know be be important in that way and I've got sympathy for a lot of footballers who we will get on to activism later who've, who've tried to seize that um, I, th- I think it was misunderstood um as I say I think he's a very genuine person I, I think maybe in this country we've got a um, a bias towards people who campaign for causes close to home and we o- overlook what a lot of foreign players do abroad and what they believe in and we probably need to start seeing things in the round and seeing things in the same way um, so uh, while I don't think this is why Arteta is not in the Premier League squad I do think on w- where where I guess I, I, I think me and Tom might be together on this is that the club will have been quite happy for Arteta to make that decision for all those other reasons and I don't like that I don't like that I, I don't think that's fair on Mesut Ozil as a person.
0: The other
4: thing that backs up the idea that this is about a narrative and an image thing is the way in which he is going to leave Arsenal. Because if it was just a footballing decision, I don't think he would be left out of the squad and just be made to, you know, force his way out and find, you know, another another club and another way. Mesut Ozil is a good enough footballer that he would demand a transfer. And yes, he's got the big wage tag around his neck, but in a similar way to Alexis Sanchez. And in a similar way to, I half wonder whether it might happen with Paul Pogba at Manchester United, the management of a big star player, as you say, and the image ends up tarnishing them so much that then, as a commodity, as a business thing, you know, uh, object to sell on, their value has plummeted so much, and I wonder whether you know, and Gregor, you said it was a different level. Was it then harder for you to find a club after? The incident that you explained before, because suddenly you then go from being, oh, he's a good lad, but he just doesn't fit my system, to being, oh, he's a bit of a bad apple. He said he would not play for the reserves that time. He's a bit <laughs> <that's the> of <top> a <laughs> no. but, uh, but I'm serious, you know. No. Meza Özil no. is not, not is not just now a talented footballer who doesn't fit Mikel Arteta's system. He's also troublesome, a bit gobby, stroppy, overpaid. La la la. You know, if you did a word association with Meza Özil, you'd probably people would probably come up with ten things. Before they even mentioned his footballing ability, I bet, and and that's that to me is part of it. Same as Alexis Sanchez, similar with Paul Pogba, you know, is that is that part of it? Does that t- t- weigh you down as a player going forward? What was your next club after that?
2: One? <laughs> uh, Northampton. No, I still I still had a I think I still had a decent reputation in the game, and I, I actually agree with Johnny. I think all, well, all, everything you said there is true about those that, that kind of association with those. I'm not sure he deserves that. I don't think he deserves to be thought of as stroppy or... No, I
4: agree. And that's what I'm saying. But I, that's what I'm saying. If it was a footballing decision, surely it would just be, well, he's a talented lad, but he doesn't quite fit my system. Anyone want him for 20 million? But instead, he's going
2: to... Well, that's what i said. There's many layers to this. So then then you've got to take into account his wages. And you've got, as you say... the You've got to take into account his his champion of the Igers and you've got to take into account the fact that he is in his his 30s and uh, looks a little bit like a player who a team has to be built around rather than someone who fits into a system and nowadays the system is the star, not a player.
1: For me though, Gregor, this is almost bullying, sort of tormenting a player by leaving them out in the cold when you're going to pay them the money anyway. They're going to leave. He's able to leave on a free next summer. So he he gets paid £350,000 a week to do nothing at your request, basically, because you've left him out of the squads. So he can't even play in any important matches. Um, So you're paying the money either way. Why not terminate his contract, let him leave instead of holding him hostage almost?
2: it could be you know it could be a part of their tactics in terms of negotiations now he they could and then in the in the next couple of months be having discussions about how to sever ties how to pay him up and what that figure is going to be you know i think he's owed something like 10 million pounds isn't he um so you know there's there's going to be some bargain i would suggest this is part of arsenal's ploy if if there was no taker and he wasn't shown willingness to leave in the last transfer window then right we'll keep hold of him he's not playing we'll come come to agreement and we've got this you know this little period now where we can we can hopefully get him off the books and and he's ready to to find another club in january
3: i I do think if we're just talking from a business point of view i mean one thing this exposes is that the art the art of selling players is really, um, is really important and underestimated. And I think you see the clever clubs, the good clubs who realise they've got an asset they no longer want, are quite skillful at, at still being able to effect that um, as a sale in a, in a way that's kind of smooth, doesn't necessarily hurt the player, nets them some money. I would think Liverpool has been a really good example of that. You know, there's been Klopp, players that Klopp has decided. Benteke was one early in Klopp's reign. Didn't fancy him from a, a just from a football point of view, not as a player, but he just didn't want to put crosses in the box, didn't want to play that kind of football, and they managed to get thirty million pounds for him because they've got Michael Edwards, who's, who's quite skillful at overseeing these things. And that Arsenal have probably fallen into what Manchester United have, have been guilty of, which is not. I mean, you could, you could see this coming. You could see this coming back in July when football restarted, and, and also wasn't in the team. And from a human level, he's suffered because of it. But also from a business point of view, Arsenal have suffered by not managing this um, transition properly as a sale. There was probably a way to do this a bit more smoothly. Get Özil to another club and get some money for him. And now, I think, as, a, as we've said, it's, it, 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 it's it's a it's a lose lose for everyone. I think.
2: I, yeah, I don't have any sympathy for Arsenal. None whatsoever. I mean, who I've said this many times on the podcast, who what other club would have paid would have paid Ozil three hundred and fifty thousand pounds a week, offered him that contract in twenty eighteen? Man United. W- no, they would not. A team
1: <laughs> yes, they wouldn't think he was already they they there. Would. Yeah. <laughs> get yeah Sanchez three
2: hundred and ninety one. <laughs> there is no other club in Europe who would have paid him that. So there's no need to pay him that. I but think there, it was a ludicrous almost, decision,
4: but there almost was because of the because again of this narrative yeah, around uh, it yeah, at yeah. the time. They were backed into a corner, and now now Ozil is seen as, and he'll be rolled out in the tough uh, times that are going on around the world over the next few months. And there sits Meza Ozil raking in his money, doing nothing. But it's not Meza Ozil's fault. He's got an agent who saw he had a club over a barrel and thought, right, I'm going to get this guy a massive deal here because they are absolutely desperate and. And he got it. And that's just good business on the agent's part. I don't like it. It's a disgusting amount of money. But within the climate and the business, it's perfectly understandable. And none of that is Mesut Ozil's fault. It's Arsenal's fault. Stupid. Absolute stupidity. And now they're hanging him out to dry. It's absolutely disgraceful, if you ask me.
1: Uh, plenty of activism, not just from Meza Ozil in football, by the way. Odia Agallo this week calling the Nigerian government a shame to the world. His Manchester United teammate, Marcus Rashford, uh, for some time now has been fighting for hungry school children uh, He said in a statement yesterday, this is not politics, this is humanity. I mean, the players' voices are getting bigger and bigger on bigger issues that affect the world at the moment. Do you think that will continue? I've been listening to the radio today. And I think the general public, non-football fans, are telling people like Marcus Rashford to stick to the, the game and kicking a ball around, which is a sad thing to hear, especially when it comes to feeding hungry school children. But it shows you, I think, Gregor, in, in, a, in, a, in a small way, what the public think about highly paid footballers.
2: Yeah, and the thing—the thing that was so uh, that I liked so much about the last few days of Rashford is that he he banged in the winner. He was a star on the pitch, and then the next very next day, he got straight back on the trail, and he was he was uh, championing feeding <laughs> feeding hungry children, which seems a ridiculous thing to have to say. Um, so you know, he he has he he has been doing it on the pitch. This, you can say that all you want; it's a ridiculous thing to say. And I have to say that this. This is something that, in the time I've been retired, is is has changed. This was this was not really something that happened when I played football. It was almost like if you were showing much of an interest in these types of things, of these kind of you know political things things in the political realm, then it would be frowned upon almost. But this is changing, and it's a good thing. Um, and you know, we can go through lots of lots of Premier League players who are who are championing really important causes and doing doing great work. And people, and, and if politicians and others feel like they can attack them, it's because they feel threatened by it. Um, and, you know, more power to Marcus Rashford.
4: If anyone in this country dares to say to a footballer, stick to football, um, quite frankly, they can absolutely do one. Because if there's one thing that in this country that gets discussed by people who probably don't have a right to discuss it, and my appearance on this podcast is proof of that, it's football. Because everyone in this country has a bloody opinion about football. Everyone in this country has opinion on Marcus Rashford. Oh, he shouldn't be a striker. He shouldn't be this. He shouldn't be that. And now he has the temerity to talk about a cause as worthy as feeding impoverished children and people telling him to go back to football. It is an absolute disgrace, anyone who says that. And quite frankly, they don't even... I've already spoken about them too much. Um, but I, I, I think it is fantastic, as Gregor says. And, it, you know, social media, this is the... I talked about Meza Ozil and the narrative. The narrative that the internet and social media can sometimes create an ability for a footballer to speak directly to the world and their fans is a brilliant thing and I mean I'd be interested in Johnny whether he's noticed speaking to footballers and interviewing them over the years whether social issues are becoming more prominent now whether back in the day they used to talk about them and you know don't want to get anyone in trouble but people would say "Oh, I'm not interested in that just tell me what you think of the left back it, or is it becoming you know our, our football is just have got they got a more social conscious these days
3: they, they definitely they they well they 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 have in the sense that um they're emboldened by the idea that they can affect change uh, i wouldn't say that the guys of the past didn't care about this stuff um but you know wages were so much lower there was no social media they, their scope to really communicate things was limited to interviews, for example, they did in newspapers and so on. And maybe our culture was at that point um, to keep football very much on the back pages and keep people in the lane. So I don't think they had the opportunity to do this. But, you know, I mean, I think back to, let's say, um Ole Gunnar Solskjaer giving away the proceeds of his um testimonial Niall Quinn did it as well Roy Keane I think did it this 15-20 years ago to charities you used to get that kind of thing but this is we're in a different era now where footballers have got um, communication platforms you know they've got they've got social media outlets that um, can can reach millions of people and this gives them a power and I think the younger generation has learned how to harness that and um, and have got a sense now, probably emboldened by people like Raheem Sterling and Marcus Rashford, or will, will embolden players further uh, with the idea they can actually do something, they can they can achieve something. And I think I do think as well that the amount of money they get paid gives a lot of them a sense of extra responsibility. Um, and I find that you know, like you Tom, I find it amazing that anybody would want to complain about a player doing this. I mean, surely. Um, surely the the idea of players just earning millions playing a game and not caring about the world surely that would be abhorrent to everyone the idea that they want to actually affect things and use the platforms they've got for good is, is is surely that's exactly what we want them to be doing and the nonsense that you can't do this and still be a player which people were trying to push at Marcus Rashford and I actually cringed the, the, the post-match interview when he scored that great goal against PSG and the first question was about oh well this shows that you can do it on the pitch as well so I, I hate all that you know it's, 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 it's asinine um, of course the two aren't, exclu- aren't exclusive of course you can do both and um, this idea that players should just stay in their lane I hate it
0: Gregor
4: can I ask in the, in the changing rooms and in the dressing room within the team culture was there, you know, chat about politics, about the news, about, you know, I, I'm I'm being serious because I think that's, as football became a global thing and Sky Sports and everything, that there was the narrative of footballers are idiots and things. I don't necessarily know where that came from and they're certainly proving now that they're not. But was was obviously the chat, as, as in anything, as in our office, the chat is often about journalism and about the industry and about gossip, etc.? It's about what you know. So obviously the chat is about football. But was there chat about other things as well?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, as I say, I think it, over the, the time I... So we, we could talk about 20 years ago when I first started playing football and it was almost non-existent. And I think gradually over the years, it became more and more part of... a Kind of acceptable. That sounds like a silly word to say. But, it, you know, football is a, a kind of macho bravo... You, you take the piss out of people for doing things different. That's the world it is, It always has been. I, th- I think that's changing a bit too. There seems to be a bit more maturity in the kind of discourse of among footballers. And I think what Johnny's saying partly is right. And it's the players are almost as big as their clubs. In fact, sometimes in, in some cases, they're bigger. They have a, they're a bigger kind of entity have a bigger platform and bigger, you know, more followers on social media. So they, as he says, they feel, feel empowered to, but um i i i think when i played this was not really something that happened and i saw it's a fairly recent phenomenon um and you know to see to see conservative MPs saying that this is virtual sign- virtual- signal from from rashford who in his statement says that i've lived this you know and he said this many times this is a this is something that I have experience of i thought it was i thought it was a bigger belief
3: I mean, the, the hypocrisy of that is, is mind-boggling because it's only a few months ago the same government was telling us that footballers needed to do their bit for society. I mean, it, it, it's beyond parody that three months later they're, you know, they're criticising Rashford for this.
1: Uh, listen, as a Manchester United fan, great to see what Marcus Rashford is doing off the pitch. Johnny was speaking about him. Affecting change. He's been doing that on the pitch as well for Man United. We'll talk about that at next on the game podcast. But you can read all about Marcus Rashford in the back and the front pages at the moment. And to enjoy more of our award winning sports journalism and news journalism, in fact, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times today. You will get one month free. Search The Times.co.uk forward slash The Game.
5: Small details are big surfaces. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Well, we've got to discuss the result in midweek in the Champions League. We've mentioned Marcus Rashford already. It finished Paris Saint-Germain 1, Manchester United 2, a late goal from Rashford. A great goal, much like March in 2019, he was decisive on the night in Paris, um, but it, w- it was seen by many as a masterstroke in terms of tactics by the manager, Oli Gunnar Solskjaer, who left the likes of Donny van der Beek and, and Paul Pogba on the bench. He went for Fred and McTominay in midfield, three at the back, Axel Tuinzebi, who hadn't played for 10 months. And it all came together and it has left people saying, well, hold on a minute, we told you, Oli's going to come good in the end. I'm not sure I'm yet in that camp. Uh, Johnny, I'll start with you. Are you? <laughs> You're um, <laughs> um, I, I,
3: I, 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 I never thought there was a point where Oli wasn't going to come good. No, I'm, 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 <clears throat> look, I, think, I think it's hard to get a bit of balance here. Um, I, I think Oli Gunnar Solskjaer from the start has done a rather good job as a Manchester United manager and also from the start has faced um, a a sort of very foolish level of of, of snobbery and a kind of... um I don't know, a, a, a narrative, to use a Tom word, is sort of built up around him. <laughs> um, around, oh, this guy came from Cardiff. If he wasn't Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, he wouldn't be Manchester United manager. He's not tactically up at the level of Guardiola and Klopp, blah, blah, blah. I mean, all of these things are actually true, but you've got to separate that and look at what he's actually done. And, and he, he took the club over the in, in an absolute complete mess at a real low ebb in terms of identity and on the pitch and league position we know what he did in that first season but as well as the results he he very quickly shifted who Manchester United are and I've seen progress ever since he finished third place last season um, three semi-finals he's okay he's had a couple of bad results at the start of this season having had the shortest pre-season of any football club in the Premier League and and against Paris Saint-Germain we saw again that he's very, very good at, 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 at the game plan that he's, a, he's, he's perfected since he since he came back to United which is a, a really potent counter-attacking game plan against teams that will come forward at you who leave themselves stretched and he'll kill them off as, as, as well as anybody. Now there's clearly things Ole Gunnar Solskjaer needs to add. I mean, he, he, to go to the next level United need to be a team that can play in different ways but so far it's been pretty good and I just I found it quite amusing on um, the other night how quiet all the um, Ollie can't coach mob were because they're they're never slow to tell us uh, to ridicule Ollie when when things don't do well and I just I just ask and I don't know if there's anyone here that might might not be a believer in in, in Solskjaer's Majesty but um, do a thought experiment pretend his name's not Oli Gunnar Solskjaer and just look at what he's done as Manchester United manager so far. You'd, you'd think he was doing a rather good job. And I think to say otherwise is, is just snobbery against
1: the name. If his name wasn't Oli Gunnar Solskjaer, he would have been sacked twice over at Manchester United. I can't believe when what you, I'm hearing. When you, what, what I am hearing. Tell me here. He's had at least he's two 12. really poor streaks. And yes, I'll admit, he's had two very, very good streaks in there as well. But... To think that, and, and look, I understand what you're trying to say. And I'm putting maybe too, con- too much context around it in that I'm thinking, well, this is Manchester United. And Manchester United should have a great coach, not just a good one. And Manchester United should be challenging for great trophies and the biggest things in sport, which they aren't. So maybe if I take that context away from it, I'd say like, okay, it's, a, it's an okay job. But for those people that say, oh, look, another Oli masterclass, do they just forget all of the games where it was shambolic? The tactics were great this week, but am I meant to forget all of the games? When, am, I, am I meant to forget that Brighton should have scored seven th- three weeks ago because we beat a depleted Paris Saint-Germain? I mean, I'd have to forget everything else and take every single game and then make a, a judgment on his whole management streak based on the last 90 minutes that I've seen, if I were to say that about him. It's an okay job. It's an, it's an a It's an okay <laughs> job, Johnny. Hugh, come on.
3: Okay, two things. Tell me the two points where you would have sacked Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and also te- tell me where Manchester United should be. What what, tra- what trophies should they have challenged for in the last, well, I don't know, do, do, where should they have been since he took over? Are they not as far forward as he as a manager could have possibly dragged them?
1: They're not as good as the sum of their parts. And, and look, this is the thing that you get a lot. Oh, the hierarchy at the club, any manager there, look what happened with Jose, you know, for varying reasons. Jose Mourinho was not ever going to be the man for Manchester United as good as a manager at, um, as he is in the record that he has simply because of the clash of personalities with the club as a whole, what it stands for, the group of players and him. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is everything that Manchester United should, should epitomise. He's been at the club as a player for a long time. He's a lovely man and he was brought in and galvanised the squad and put a smile back on their faces and they started playing again. They have never been a sensational side since he's been there. The best games they've played have been against amongst the worst teams in the league. And yes, Paris Saint-Germain, great win the other night. And we went to Paris Saint-Germain in March of 2019 and we beat them as well. But they're, they're not tactical masterclasses, Johnny. Then they're, 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 they're not anything that would make you think this guy's going to win anything. And, and um, amongst the trophies that Man United should challenge for the Le- Le League Cup I mean any any trophy in football would be great any to challenge for any trophy would be great
2: when we're going to let Tom gloat Tom I think it's time for you to gloat come on see what, what, what you got to it, say what is it Jose go
4: Mourinho says I prefer not to speak if I speak I mean <laughs> um,
2: yeah I mean I assume
4: you're referring to the moment on Monday's podcast when one of us I can't remember who said that Ole would probably play a back three and Fred and McTominay would have a blinder and that they'd knock it long to Marcus and they might win it and maybe someone said that this is the only game in which Solskjaer works I I think they might get a point I think they might get a point play three at the back McTominay Fred in midfield Fernandez, and you know Rashford as the only two attacking players nick a point if anything I did them a disservice if anything look what, what else can you say? I think he he works like that, Johnny, you're right. And it's impressive when you can put Axel Twenzaby in a back three, having barely played, and get a result against PSG. The trouble is, and it, feel, it feels like my theme of this show, Solskjaer feels like he needs the dips in order to have his great tactical moments. He needs the 6-1s against Tottenham to happen. He needs to lose against Crystal Palace. He needs Harry Maguire to be out injured. He almost needs that siege mentality against him and the team to take the pressure off the team. Perhaps I don't. I'm not quite sure. For him to narrow down his tactics so that people don't focus on the fact that why is Paul Pogba not playing? Why has he gone to a back three? Why why, why can't you get your system to work? He need he needs that to to dissipate, to go away, so that he's then, oh, well, they're never going to get anything against PSG, Maguire's out, Wednesday he has got to play, bloody hell, they've got no chance. He needs all that to happen for his, for his tactics to work. And David Say certainly did. He, I've never said he's not, he's a tactical idiot. He's got one very good tactic. Just that's as far as it goes. And I think my point lies between you and Hugh in that you, ha- it, you can be that guy, but you, c- you can't go any further than that. And he, be you know, as long as he's now going to play Fred and McTominay because they're the mo- his most effect- effective midfield two, but he's not going to. He'll then go back to trying to work a midfield three out that has Paul Pogba in it, which will play a back four, which will leave them more exposed, and we'll be we'll be back again.
1: He he is one of the stranger managers in football in that Johnny during his entire time in charge. They have been a team that has underperformed against the teams that you would expect them to roll over. Generally speaking, if we take the two years as a whole and have excelled against the teams that when it looks like they're going to get battered, they beat, you know, and every time that meant that Oli Gunnar Solskjaer would have been sacked in the past, it's because he's things are going really badly. He's got a run of games against these massive teams and then he wins them. And everyone goes, Oh my God, Oli's going to be the man in the future. He's beating Man City.
2: I don't think he was, I don't personally think he has ever come to the point where you think he has to be sacked. And you say that's happened twice. I don't think that's the case. I just think we've seen this all before. And that we're at the kind of the upward curve of a cycle that we've seen already, and that as Tom says, they lose they lose there's some pretty embarrassing, humbling defeats. There may even be some more against teams that you expect them to be able to break down and they can't, and then they play against a team that comes out and attacks them and they are you know, set up pretty well and they, they beat them in the counter attack. And everyone goes, Oh, hang on, yeah, Ollie's maybe Ollie's at the wheel. And then <laughs> that curve will continue for a little while and then we'll come back down again. And probably in a couple of months' time.
3: As ever, the, there's a bit of nuance here and it's hard to get nuance over in a, in a football debate sometimes. And Ollie, we were talking about hype earlier on. Nobody did him any favours with all that Gary Neville build a statue nonsense, the Rio in the studio. That That's done Ollie no favours. Ollie at the wheels. A curse for him, quite honestly. Um, uh, agree. It's not his Definitely. fault. You're right.
4: You're right about that. Well, I completely agree.
3: Well, it's not. It's not his fault. I mean, and and look, what what I would accept, I, 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 I we're right to say that there's another level he needs to go to, and and here you're right that that he needs to start. Uh, if he can ever win titles, and that's exactly what Manchester United should be aiming for, he needs to start beating Crystal Palace at home. He needs to find something more than that long counter-attacking game. But my problem is that when he took over and where United are now, he, he's done exactly the job you'd have wanted him to do. He's 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 created huge progress. Um, I can list tuan zabi Marcus Rashford, Martial, Greenwood, McTominay. You know, he's 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 he's, he's reached back into United's system and created. Um, he's 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 created five or six players for them where they are trying to sign players before you know these these players were these were young players being browbeaten under jose that that that, that weren't the the development was being stunted i think he's reconnected with united with what they need to be and he's started achieving big victories again beating manchester city three times last season 10 away wins in a row first time in the club's history and my problem with the solskjaer narrative is is that he gets no credit for this. It's as if it's as if he's still some idiot that's just arrived with a smile on his face because Edward Wood likes him and because he's a nice guy. And he's kind of, you know, when he does well, it's a fluke. And when he does badly, that exposes the fact he's some kind of, um, you know, fraud or whatever. And I, I just give the guy some credit. He might not be the guy ultimately to beat Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola and win the title, we know that these things don't happen in two seasons. You know, these things take five years to build, unless you're Man City when you spend a billion pounds. So he's only halfway through that. I'd give him a bit more time, see where he goes.
4: I would also just say that I have given him credit, and that's why you know I think we're kindred spirits. That's why I can see what he's going to do before he does it himself. But if you look at the end of last season, you talk about him winning trophies, he built up to that, and we're going to talk about Chelsea in a minute, of course. We got to that semi-final in the FA Cup, And United probably went into that as favourites in good form. It was in that period after restart where they'd scored a lot of goals. Greenwood had been fantastic. And this is something I've said as well, that Frank Lampard is poor at coaching. But Chelsea did an absolute job on them. And United never looked in that game at all. And that's where Solskjaer's reached reached his peak in terms of, in my opinion. So he does credit for getting to that point. But then when, and Seville happened as well in the Europa League. Once, once, United, once Solskjaer's United become the favourites, they can't handle it. If there are favourites going into a big game like that, he can't do it tactically because he can't work out how to win that game. The other team does a job on him and that's as far as his United side can go. He's absolutely deserved credit and he's not this baby-faced former Cardiff coach who doesn't know what he's doing. He does in in the scenarios I outlined earlier. It's the other ones that where he falls down. And that's... That's what costs will cost him potentially.
2: I think the last thing that Johnny said there—that he might not be the guy to compete with Guardiola and and Klopp—that's the kind of thing underlying everything. That resignation, that acceptance—that that is the truth. I mean, it would be it would be something pretty pretty remarkable if he was to take that leap. And I suppose that is underlying all of this is that you know you can have the peaks and troughs and and you can give him credit. And he deserves credit. But if Manchester United want to bridge that gap, then they have a manager there that we almost all are certain he's not going to do it. Johnny wants to disagree,
3: though. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I don't. Just, just, just quickly. I mean, it, I just don't think that manager in the current Manchester United is out there. I don't think there's a manager that's going to take Manchester United to the title in six months or, or, or would have done from where Solskjaer is now. I think what he has done is built something. That he will either do something with this season, or someone else can come in, and but but he will, will have created something of real value. Whatever happens, in what he's done in the
1: last eighteen months or two years or whatever it is. Well, I think you're right about that. You know, I think you're. I'll, I'll give credit where it's due, as Gregor says. No, look, it was a brilliant performance. Don't against, force yourself, Hugh. Don't. That sounded so forced. <laughs> it's, it's it's not that. It's credit. I, listen, taking the match as it as it as it is. Credit where it's due. Taking his time in charge, as I said, it's been good. But what you get after a win like that is people saying it's now great. You know, and I'm not going to go to the, I'm not going to exaggerate. It's not great. As I said, we talk about Crystal Palace. We talk about the game against Brighton. You know, this isn't that long ago. So, you know, there are still issues at Manchester United. And they go into the game at the weekend against Chelsea, who are having all of their own issues as well. It's a big game for both in the Premier League and Frank Lampard against Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. It's the Tom Clark derby, of course. You know, what do I expect Manchester United to do at the weekend? I don't necessarily make them favourites at home against Chelsea, you know, off the back of beating Paris Saint-Germain. It's a great result on the night. They have to put it together consistently and even against big teams, that's not where I want the consistency at the moment because their season is being decided in the results against the smaller team. So I look further down the line and I'm looking at the games against, you know, a mid-table side, against the Southampton, against the Burnley. I don't want those to be the difficult games anymore. Do you know what I mean? So it's an interesting one. I'm looking forward to the game against Chelsea just because I think it's going to be a great encounter because... i'm not necessarily sure the two defenses are going to be great and so it could be a great match maybe man united will go with a back three once again it depends who comes back from injury at the moment i wouldn't put harry Maguire back in there if he is fit to be perfectly frank with you because i think the defense did really well the other night and certainly looked a lot more mobile um tom i'll start with you then we've spoken about the managerial side of things how do you think the two managers will approach the game
4: it, it might be very similar to the FA Cup semi-final um, last season in that it might be a case of who blinks first almost tactically. They're both under a little bit of pressure. They're both got players in and out of form. I think on Frank Lampard's side, you would look and say that the fact that he's kept clean sheets with Mendy in goal and with Thiago Silva in defence is a good sign for people like me who say they're too open and going forward. So that's a good sign for him. I would probably favor Chelsea slightly because I just think the pressure then goes back on Solskjaer and United and that's when I don't think Chelsea will play into their hands I think Chelsea will do a job on them in the way that I said teams tend to do. And I think they for as I say you know all jokes aside about um, my abilities as some kind of mystic meg figure Chelsea are looking better in terms of their defensive abilities and it, the as i say the two clean sheets when mendy is in goal and tiago is in defense is a good sign but i still if, it'll be an open game but i won't i maybe chelsea 2-1 3-2 something like that if you're asking me i feel like i'm being put going to be put on the spot now every time i should also you know i, I remind, didn't, I didn't remind, ask you for a prediction to be honest i'm just so used to it now i'm just yeah,
1: cavalier i'll go for it just put your mortgage on it everyone guaranteed <laughs> johnny what do you think um, frank lampard's had his detractors
3: it's a hard one, isn't it? I mean, it's and it's. we're talking about how managers and their relationships with players and, and Frank appears to have shifted the responsibility for those defensive performances onto Kepa with his comments this week. So he's got he's to back that up now by showing that it it, it is, you know, change of goalkeeper is going to solve it. Um, I, I guess I've got a put my money where my mouth is and, and, and favour United slightly in this one I, I, I'm i still surprised they lost that FA Cup semi-final because I actually think that Chelsea should be exactly the kind of team um, the way Ole plays uh, allows them to dismantle and having seen Chelsea um, against pace at the back pace up front against West Brom this, this year when Thiago was to be fair to him in his first game but but you know, the, the fears that you might have had about him and his age seem to be true. Um, United should be able to to suck Chelsea forward and, and hit them. But it, I think it's interesting to mention to I think I think he gives them a different dimension at the back that they have to have. And um that will be ever more important against Timo Werner and his pace. But I'm I'm going to the game, um, and I suppose I'll have to go for Ollie. In a, in a tight encounter.
4: I look forward to reading your intro if Chelsea do win. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was unlucky against Chelsea as his side were narrowly beaten 5-0. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Ed Woodward must take responsibility for this defeat for Chelsea. <laughs> so, Gregor, I wanted to ask you just quickly about Manchester United's midfield going into this weekend. Um, Fred and McTominay did a lot of the running on uh, Tuesday night and when you've got the quality of Paul Pogba, Donny van de Beek has already shown uh, in small cameos what a player he could be for Manchester United as well. Those two players on the bench, I mean, do you go into a game against Chelsea and, and leave them out again and what does that mean for Donny van der Beek who's just got there and then Paul Pogba's future?
2: I suppose it kind of ties into what we're saying about all it's kind of a common theme this season is that, you know, the system is the players who who fit that system best and if he plays the same, same way, which I imagine... Imagine he will then those two players offer the kind of the platform for for Fernandez to to flourish. Um, and I I, you know, I kind of agree with with Johnny in that when you look at the two teams that that has been Chelsea's weakness as well as in the kind of filling the spaces in the in front of the back four as much as anything. And that's the kind of pockets of spaces that Fernandez could uh, could really threaten. in, I think so. You know that. <laughs> I would say that Man United could could uh, could emerge victorious from this one personally.
4: Just one quick thing. I think this will ultimately. I mean, and this this will be the big thing both managers will be thinking about. But whoever wins this game, in my mind, will then be the superior coach because <laughs> this this will obviously be keeping them up at night. But if Lampard plays into Chelsea, into Manchester United's hands in terms of leaving that space for Rashford to run in behind. I mean come on that is that is just the most obvious obvious thing so if he if he plays into their hands like that then that to me proves that frank lampard perhaps isn't good enough to be chelsea coach but if he stops united doing that but then solskjaer can break them down then fair, fair play <laughs> fair play it's all to play for they've got you know they've got my my opinion of them riding on this outcome I'm sure it be will
1: desperate. all be decided this weekend at Old Trafford as I said the Tom Clark derby on the way um, just interestingly um, communication at the back maybe for Chelsea hasn't been great so far this season they brought in Thiago Silva to try and solve that reportedly being taught English by his Chelsea teammate at Jorginho. I don't know whether that's in Portuguese or Italian, but he, he he's getting there. And the question is really, out of all the phrases that he needs to be teaching Thiago Silva... Most quickly, most pertinently, what will be the ones and what phrases does anyone playing in the Premier League need to know as a must? What do you think, guys?
2: Squeeze! <laughs> <laughs> that was my favourite. <laughs> Although when I joined, so when I, when I joined uh, Northampton Town, as I referenced earlier, Eddie Boothroyd had just been sacked. He was now the England of the 21 manager. And, I, and there was still a little kind of crossover from his favourite, which was put it in the cage. And the cage is the box. So his, fa- his stock phrase was put it in the cage. That says all you need to know about Eddie Boothroyd's football.
1: Tom, can you muster any ideas as, as what well, I've
2: got, I've got
4: plenty of know. ideas, um, thanks to some listeners. A few people have suggested second ball and uh, put it in the mixer. I uh, had a very good suggestion from uh, Chris, who says box them in, which is something that you know what, similar to the cage reference. What is this box? Where am I putting them? Um, Boxing br- someone in, you know, it's it's near their corner flag. They've got yeah, to throw pop, in. So you got to box in. them in. There's another great, great one from Sam <laughs> explaining the importance, particularly the half for, uh, as a centre-half for Thiago Silvers, to when Timo Werner's ch- trotting back to the centre circle to put the ball down and they're 2-0 up, being able to shout to the lads in front. It's 0-0, it's lads. We go again. That would be an important one for him. <laughs> Um, but I, 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 think- I do.
1: I do wonder if in Brazil that's a phrase. It's nil nil, lads. Or whether, it, or whether it's like, it's for all, lads, is the phrase they use in Brazil. I mean, and if any team being needs really to learn it's
4: nil-nil, lads, it's Frank Lampard's Chelsea, because goodness <laughs> me, they are good at throwing away a lead. So that is one I would... Def- Sam's got a great suggestion there. Um, my personal one is in tribute to uh, Huddersfield Town. And if a- anyone's not been catching up on the championship action this week, do yourself a favour and Google or uh, look up their goal against Derby County, which was absolutely fantastic. It shows the... Uh, the passing out from the back is all the way through the English pyramid. A left back called Harry Toffolo who may or may not have played for a team who played in Red and White at some point in his career is now at Huddersfield Town and under their new manager they scored an absolutely brilliant goal from back to front But so I, the idea that keep the ball, pass the ball is becoming a common English phrase but I do wonder whether the likes of Thiago Silva might need to also learn the phrase no not there! Because, <laughs> because for all the confidence and all the great goals that the likes of Huddersfield score, I can guarantee you that it doesn't always pay off. So I, w- I would personally go with no, not there as a key. Who fit
1: being taught Get by Jorginho to Thiago Silva might be good. Yeah, Johnny We've just got a complete
3: tangent. Apologies for this, but it just sprung on my mind. Um, and I want to ask Gregor, but you know when 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 players take a corner and they put their hand up you know put their arm up and sorry it's a podcast not very visual but you know what I mean I saw Andy Robertson doing it for Liverpool last night I don't seem to see foreign players do it is that a British thing and does it actually mean anything you know is that a signal that Thiago Silva would need to learn you know Reese James sticking his hand up
2: in my ex- short experience it's it can be if there's one hand up sometimes there's two hands up so it could be the first corner from that side you're doing there might be a, two options and you do one or two so usually there would be like a pattern you'd know which one was first, second, third and fourth.
3: So there's a proper playbook in action I like well it.
2: there often is nowadays I think yeah. Georgina's <laughs> teaching
1: sign language as well I mean he's got his work cut out, he's <laughs> a lot of
2: pressure. Just Are one, other, one other one on the old on the language. I remember in Nottingham Forest there was actually kind of code words as well so we used to use uh, Barney and Fred so a Barney was an over, so you'd let the ball run, and a Fred was standing on the ball. So if two players are crossing, you stand on the ball. So like you might you might even have some code words to learn. <laughs> it's a lot of pressure. Just just
4: a few other great ones coming in uh, on Twitter. I've just re- refreshed and seen a lot of other great suggestions. Will says they don't want it, lads. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is
1: an excellent. You won't one. have to use that phrase much at Chelsea. Don't worry. They about don't that. want it,
4: lads. Let them know you're there
0: is
1: another
4: great <laughs> And there's a good tactical tip, stand him up. Stand him up. Ben suggests that. And then lots of people, obviously fans of uh, League Two football down the years, saying second ball and get rid, get rid,
1: knock it long.
2: Matt Dickinson also included the uh, channel ball, which I built a, car- I built a career on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Hit the channels. Um Gregor, just quickly on not understanding foreign teammates particularly when it comes to accents how did yours work with some of the players that you played with from are you from they different wouldn't
2: countries? be able to understand me is that what you're no, i'm saying you might not be able to understand them gregor frankly yeah. what
1: was your first
4: word you learned in english
2: <laughs> right, that's it i'm taking my head so my head runs off <laughs> uh there's a lot of body language used um and the word yes and no <laughs> that's about it yes if you're on the ball and no uh, I don't know what no was for but really it was very basic
1: the global language is football guys real pleasure talking to you Jonathan Northcroft uh, Greg Robertson and Tom Clark there and thank you for listening uh, to the game football podcast from the Times a reminder you can subscribe to the Times and the Sunday Times as well for more of the latest news from the world of football just go online search the times.co.uk forward slash the game And you can get yourself one month free. Thanks for listening. We'll be back on Monday.
5: Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall.